writing these. Some very, very intriguing work has been done um, with investigating what happens when sunlight meets these stones and what of the sunlight, what of the, the cosmic rays actually go through the stone, through the structure of the silicon molecules, and what does not. And of course, that's an area which um, for some people in the room know a lot more about than me. But it's interesting that, such as Rudolf Steiner said in the 1930s, these were used as healing places. They were used to put people in, and it wasn't until within the last 15 years, I think, that people have began to have instruments to be able to measure what happens when sunlight goes through rock. Nobody actually thought that sunlight went through rock before, but there is a certain crystalline structure to the rock, which certain rays go through and certainly get tied in knots. It's fascinating. Next one over there. <coughs> Another view of Stonehenge from the heel stone. So, a jump for me, this, um, quite some years ago, I don't know exactly when, probably in the 60s, this article was written by John Davy. Some people just wouldn't know who John Davy was. Um, he's a science writer for both the Sunday pages at the time. But um, Einstein had picked up this business of orientation, I mean, I beg your pardon, Hoyle, the astronomer had picked up this um, business of orientation and started trying to make comparisons with, with what had been found by different um, astronomers citing from Stonehenge. And he said, well, if this is the case, if they did do this, next one over there shows the calculations of, if they were able to do it, this, this is to do with the citing from the center of Stonehenge to the different times of the year. That it would mean they'd have to have a brain as, as equal to an Einstein to have done it. And this is what I mean by the challenge of consciousness. Now, of course, Fred Hoyle, by making this statement, suddenly was put right on the fringe of his particular brotherhood. Because anybody who makes statements like this immediately becomes suspect and got to the edge of his orthodoxy. But nevertheless, it's very interesting that he had the courage to do so. So, um, what we are looking at are uh, both as facts and symbols what is the meaning of the moon and what is the meaning of the sun in relationship to human life. Well, it's very obvious what the relationship with the sun is because we know life is not possible on the planet without it. But the relationship with the moon is that much more subtle, and those who have studied metaphysics of any tradition know that the moon has a very, very special place. It's the nearest of the heavenly bodies to us. And apart from the fact that it governs the fertility cycle of every female in this room, which everybody knows, Precisely on a 28 day cycle. In fact, if you go into the deeper philosophies, you find that the intervals of the moon, for instance, in Islam represent the 28 possible divisions of totality, which become the sounds from the sacred alphabet of Arabic, in which the Quran is written. And that you have to, but that's a very deep study, but fascinating. So the next one here, I should talk about this together an image of the sun. The sun is always a circle. The sun is the principle of permanency. And the movement, the moon, is the principle of the change. This is the permanent mind, the universal mind, the unchanging mind, and this is the changing mind. This is the lunar mind, which every night is a different shape, and therefore representing the principle of change. This therefore represents traditionally what's known as the sublunar world, the world that we are in, the world that we're in, everybody, nobody argues, is the world of change. But the point about the symbol of the sun to all traditional societies, the sun represents the fact that change can only take place in an unchanging ambience. Can only take place, change is, can only take place against, can only be measured against changelessness. Now what's fascinating is the moon and the sun are virtually the same size in the sky. 
Now, some people would say, that's totally arbitrary. But to other people, it's not arbitrary at all. It's the most fascinating thing that some of them are in complete, of completely different orders of, of, of uh, heavenly bodies, this being the, the most clear thing that we know about them, and this being um, the most amazing furnace of life. Uh, but to, to the human eye, and that, that raises the whole series of very deep questions about how big we are, why we're the size we are, why um, the, the, the position of the planet Earth was chosen, if I can use such a phrase, on which the experiment of life to take place, is because we are that distance from the sun. And the moon is the largest uh, body that any planet in our solar system has to carry. This is, this is, on one hand, a major burden for the planet Earth. On the other hand, it's that which pulls the water of the planet up and down six feet every night. This floor that we're on rises up six feet and goes down again every 24-hour cycle. Of course, we don't feel it because we're riding it, as they say. Um, but the moon actually pulls the Earth out of shape and back again in this rhythm every night. So the, literally the pull of the, the moon on the waters means it has a pull on anything which is liquid, which is what we are, anything which is living is liquid, the moon is constantly conducting uh, its rhythm on it. Now that's a, a physical measurement of the moon, and the metaphysical measurement of the moon will be what it represents in terms of consciousness. Now I put a little diagram together here with the moon and sun in traditional form, the moon being silver, and the sun being gold, gold being the permanent metal, silver always changing, always tending to become tarnished, also highly sensitive to light. The moon reflects the light of the sun, silver is highly sensitive to light, hence photography was born through sheets of silver being light sensitive, in fact even able to make these slides. But the way in which these two overlap will be seen in the next, it's a diagram which is a very important geometric metaphor. If you'd like to look at these two diagrams, this comes from Tibetan Buddhism. The actual meaning of, of what these are comes from Tibetan Buddhism, which in itself, Buddhism grew out of the Vedic tradition. And this circle here, which represents the golden one, is the universal consciousness, the unchanging consciousness. And that which is outside that, and a reflection of it, is empirical consciousness. Now this very, very simple little diagram, and what is in the middle, is the word manas, which means consciousness itself, and this is where the root of the word man, as mankind comes from. It's a Sanskrit word which has been inherited universally across Europe. It's what's called the Indo-European word. Man, the conscious animal, or the self-conscious animal, might be better think. So here we have empirical, that is the basis. The word science, we misuse the word science modernly very badly. As, as, as Schumacher said, when you say the word science, which science do you mean? Do you mean the science of manipulation or the science of understanding? And of course, this is the science of manipulation. And of course, what we term science now is, is empirical science, the science of the senses, which is constantly changing. Hence, all the, the, the most powerful contemporary laws of science, which are to do with relativity, uh, the, the uncertainty principle, all these things are very descriptive of the symbolic nature of this part of our consciousness. Sacred science is, is the science of permanences, that which does not change. And of course, we've reached a stage in cynicism in the modern West where a lot of people don't believe there is such a thing as a sacred science. All the world, we can say that's their problem. <laughs> there is the moon as a Vestalt. Those are the 28 stages of the moon. And by seeing it like this, you can begin to get a sense of many things, many metaphors. This is where the horns of dilemma comes from. 
Oh, nice. And this is where the sacred beads of rosaries come from, and the reason we wear pearls around our neck, and goodness knows what. There's a whole series of very interesting things summed up in the sight of the moon, from dark of the moon to a full circle of the moon. Very easy to register. Seven intervals to half, seven intervals to full, seven intervals to half again, and seven intervals back to the dark of the moon. Those are seven days of each week, the four weeks of one month. What's the word month? The root of the word month comes from moon anyway. Moon. Symbol for the sun is this one, and with or without the central dot. With the central dot, it has a symbolic meaning that it is the eye of God open. When there's not a dot in the middle, the eye of God is closed. Now, I'm using symbolic language there, but this enables me to put one or two quotes on the screens which are directly related to societies who did commit their early philosophy to writing, and therefore I believe it's valid to, to speculate on what the so-called pre-literate societies were actually, what was happening in their consciousness, rather than the only evidence we've got in the environment. So the next one here. This is from a... Vedic manuscript, which was to do with how to lay out sacred space. And of course, again, the interpretation is, or the, the, the translation is difficult. The circle is the all. Well, we don't use phrases quite as profoundly short and sweet as that, but that's what it is. The circle is the all. This is, it is the breath of life, which is prana. This word prana is both the breath of life, also translates as wisdom. It is in it, um, the breath of life is in its form, that is, meaning by that, this is the breath of life within. The circle is time, that is, time is the procedure around. And according to the Vastu Veda, this is, this is the Vedic manuscript that comes from. The circle consists of its station, that's the centre here, and its boundary, which of course is the circle. They lie, sorry, um, and its boundary. Life is state of mind. Consisting of the mind and its movement, the mind being that axial center and the movement of the mind, the movement of consciousness. The support of the circle is immortal, the bindu, that's the bindu, immortal, in its firm position. Stationary like the atma in man. The atma is that which links everybody in this room according to Vedic wisdom. We all have one thing in common, we have an eternal self, which is called the atma. However, little we cloud ourselves. Starting from the Bindu, by connecting with another point, arises the circumference, or the enclosure surrounding it. He who knows this is the Supreme Lord, the Overseer, Union, that's what yoga means, Union, Yoga. He is intelligent, he is the truth. In other words, the mystery between here and here, when it's understood, gives one an immense amount of power, which is, which is the aim, the power, a power of wisdom, which is the aim of the true builder in the Vedic tradition. Next one over there. Now this is a little bit more sophisticated in its language, and it comes from Ibn Arabi and the Islamic tradition. And this is the philosopher that I was recommending. If you want to understand how the lunar cycle is understood philosophically by the Islamic tradition, this is the man to read. And this is the end of a book by a man called um, Titus Burkhardt, one of my teachers. He said, finally we should recall the formula Mugidin in Arabi, that we've already cited, incidentally, during the course of our expedition. The cosmological and metaphysical importance of which is altogether fundamental. 
The world, that is the physical world we experience, the changing world, consists of the unity of the unified. In other words, all the little pieces are unified to make the changing world, whereas the divine independence resides in the unity of the unique. Now that is a phrase which really needs to be thought about many times and digested, but there's a great deal of difference to the philosophers of what is unified into unity and what is the unity of that which is unique. And of course, the unity of the unified refers to the outer circle, unity of the unique refers to the bindu of the center. Now here is a diagram, one of the series of creation myths by the Lenape Indians in North America. They're called Indians, sadly, they're not Indians at all. That's what we decided before because we thought we discovered India that way around. But here's a very, very interesting thing. That can look to the untrained eye like a primitive drawing. And of course, in a sense it is, but it's a very primary primitive drawing for as much as much more in that drawing, if you analyze it, than first hits the eye. First of all, the 12 intervals of the relationship of the sun and the moon are marked up by these points. Therefore, the cycle of the sun and its swells into there. And the moon, not counting this time, but in fact taking that loop, this describes the behavior of the planets. In a way, that many modern, sophisticated people have been brought up to believe that the planets just go politely around, um, miss the point completely, because the planets don't. They go like this, around this, and back again. They're, they're called retrograde movements, which is a way of putting them down, because retrograde must be doing the wrong thing, whereas in fact it's doing precisely the right thing. So here we have the movement of the planets, the movement of the moon and the sun, from people who could be categorized as Stone Age people. Next one. Now here again is the Islamic um, circle of cosmology where you see all the phases of the moon in here and the corresponding letter of the alphabet to those phases. You see the solar constellations represented by the symbols we use ourselves. There's Pisces here um, and so forth, Sagittarius and the twins. And then inside here are the planetary orbits and each one of the philosophers of the Holy Quran represent the archetype of one of the planetary envelopes. <coughs> and fascinatingly enough, of course, these, these prophets, many of them identical to the prophets of the Jewish and Christian testaments too. So here we have the archetypes of the planets representing, being represented by the archetypes in the scripture. The reason I'm pointing these things out is because in every authentic traditional uh, every authentic tradition, the cosmological symbols we see in the heavens, which the stone circles are there to measure, correspond to principles within each individual person. The microcosm and macrocosm are a reflection of each other. This one is rather more esoteric. This is the, the Vedic, the most complicated and the most uh, sophisticated of the Vedic diagrams, which is a diagram of the universe. And each of these triangles carries also a sound which spirals in each sound of the, the boundary alphabet until it gets to the middle. So these are the four entrances into the cosmological world, and then you take a spiral path through different sounds to find the center of yourself, but under the guidance of a teacher. So although we see great differences here, they're also remarkably common factors. Geometry being the language, human language, to cope with the amazing variety of lights we have in the sky called cosmology. Next one here. Somebody's saying, normally you don't just stay in circles. Well, that's the second half, folks. Um, this is the Christian one. Oops, this is, this is a Christian one where um, we have 
God and the angelic hosts. Sorry, at the top of my picture, I'm not allowed to show pictures of God. Um, and here we have the, the, the envelopes which the spirit, according to the Christian tradition, has to descend. And as John Allett is a great expert on how it reascends, is part of the tradition of Dante and so forth. So we have terra, the earth, we have water, we have air, and we have fire. These things are on earth. Then we have the envelope of the moon, then the envelope of Mercury, then the envelope of Venus, the sun, and so forth. And these are considered to be not only physical facts of the universe, but properties of our consciousness. They are parts of ourselves which we have to reintegrate. Having become highly differentiated, we have to reintegrate ourselves by finding the way back to the world of unchanging divinity. And here is the Neoplatonic cosmology, which that is directly an inheritor of. This um, comes from uh, Cicero and sums up the, the envelopes, the psychological envelopes and, 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 and spiritual envelopes of, of, of the world and of the human being. The earth in the middle here containing four elements, and then the moon and the sun both. Then the celestial sphere, which of course is one of the zodiac on here, and then two more envelopes after that, which is common to the two more envelopes here. And that is the world soul, big tree, in fact, the world soul, the world mind, and the supreme unity. Now this pattern here, I think the next slide will show it, I would suggest is the basis of the labyrinth on the floor at Shaft. This is one of the most famous stone circles we've got in Christendom, and it is a stone circle, and it is made up of exactly the right formula to support this thesis. And therefore the um, joy of being a child and, and, and traversing this, there's only one way you will get there, but by traversing this, it is also a memnonic, a dance-paced memnonic to get to the centre and then to find your way out again. And of course the number of these here represent a cycle of the moon, and there's another whole lecture, but <laughs> I'm suggesting this stone circle is evidence of using and understanding this, and I'm also suggesting that both of them have in common a prior wisdom which lies in the stone circles which we see in Britain, which I hope to demonstrate as we get along. Next one there. Both next ones will be. Of course, the ultimate stone circles are here, and they are stone circles. They're filled in with, with glass, which is also a form of stone, liquefied sand. But um, the ultimate uh, conclusion, one might say, in the heavenly dimension, that is the, 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 this dimension rather than on the floor, is the, is the rose window, for instance, at Chartres Cathedral, taking the ground point, folds down exactly onto the, the maze, onto the labyrinth which shows a direct correspondence between the labyrinth on the floor and the rose window, which is on the heaven-earth axis. And there's no doubt this is, this is also a total cosmology. This is actually in Paris, this one. Right, just to touch on a little bit of the esoterica, this is mainly for my students, but um, please don't mean that not to be for anybody else in the room, but just a little bit of sophisticated knowledge is needed here, and that is to interpret that. Here we have God the Creator, and here we have the creation in the circle, and we have the sun and the moon, and we have six planets. Now, my students won't immediately recognize that, but I hope when I show the next slide on there, they'll see what that pattern is. Okay, so every point which is on here is a point in the Icos of Eden. Sun and moon, and then the six planets. Now, until you've studied these things, until you've studied the Platonic figures, you wouldn't be able to interpret that in the window of the church. And that's exactly what this kind of... But the basis of that 
art would not be to say that you can't appreciate until you have this knowledge. It would just say, this will hit your unconscious mind, and it will feed straight into the heart, maybe. But then another part goes into it, and back to know why it's like that. So this is Neoplatonism in, 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 in visual form. Next one here. <laughs> Sorry, can I just go back one? I want you to remember this form, because the people who built the stone circles in this, these islands were knowledgeable of, and sophisticated enough to be able to make out of the hardest stone they could get their hands on, these figures. And that is at least a thousand, if not two thousand years, before these figures were allowed to have been invented by the history of mathematics. So when we come to see these figures which were, which were created in Scotland, two thousand years before Plato first um, published these figures, it does make a major question mark about where civilization started, where it migrated from, and the, the history of human consciousness. All these things are hidden within these non-verbal objects. Next one here. And next one over there. Now we come into um, two other traditions. One, the fact that geometry is a game that all human societies have always played. And this is literally being played, and this is played, these two games are played in common by two peoples who probably could never have come in contact with each other. The Babinga, who are the small black people who live in the um, dense forest of the Congo, rather unfortunately called pigmies by the French. Babinga play these games, and they're cosmological, we call them cat's cradle, and also the, the, the people who are also unfortunately called Eskimos by the French, who are the Inuit people, the Inuit people. So we should always try to call people by the name they call themselves. And Babinga and Inuit both use these same geometries. Now how could the people in the, in the most dense tropical jungle of Congo have, have met the Eskimos and the Congo? But what we can say is, they are common properties of human consciousness and the desire to understand geometry in this remarkable way. This is the Egyptian tradition where this is a goddess and this is a, this is a king in the changing world, this is a goddess in the changeless world. And between them and the bees, which are mallets, they are staking out a temple. This is the, this is the hieroglyph for the king being taught by the goddess how to lay out a temple. These are the stakes that go on the ground and these are the ropes which are stretched to make the geometry. So the, the compass in this case is just a, 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 a circle of rope. In other words, the extension of this string. The word string, if you think about it a little bit, what is a string and how many languages and how the word string, a uh, suture in Latin, becomes a sura or a sutra in sacred vision. It is the line between earth and heaven by which we can climb back. And the, the string of beads on a sutra are the prayer beads of every tradition. So, stringing ourselves back, like Ariadne's thread, stringing ourselves back to our divine origin is common again in many different forms in all cultures. Next one. And going back to the Indus Valley, 2500 BC, getting back to the area where our stone circle is going to be, even the scant remnants of the Indus Valley civilization excavated at Harappa and Mahendara reveal some acquaintance with geometry. Of course, it's very, very. Um, what should I say, orthodox way of being, you know, rather condescending. Um, in the words of E.J.H. McKay, not good enough to be E. McKay, but E.J.H. McKay, it is surprising to find that instrument was actually used, surprising to find, actually for this purpose, I was drawing circles and the inside to come from. Now, I mean, one has to be a little bit humorous about um, the pomposity of modern scholarship, I have to include myself in that. 
Um, but it's surprising to Mr. Mackay that, that the, these guys in 2,500 could actually do circles. So much for the brainwashing we've had about Darwinism and the fact we ought to only really be grunting apes at that time. It doesn't matter which choice we're in, we're only really scratching under our armpits. Um, so much for Darwin. Next one over here. <coughs> so, this is a sacred thread, and anybody who knows anything about the Vedic tradition, the first thing a child is given is the sacred thread to wear. And the, the two tools of the, um, what is called a sabaka, I can't pronounce this, but the, 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 the sabaka is, is the knowledgeable builder, are these two tools. That's what we now call a line and the measuring rod. And of course, if you read this, it, they're constant reference to the fact that it's not only attaining the, the, the skill of building on the ground, but attaining the skill of understanding oneself while doing it. In other words, liberation. The object of this teaching, this world, is to find liberation. Liberation from the changing mind. Next one So, um, this is now coming on to my own attempts to try and rationalize uh, uh, Tom's discovery. Um, that is Alexander Tom, not that Tom sitting in the back there. Tom's discovery, that is that they started their um, laying out of the sacred space. In fact, it was fascinating how they did it because the first thing they did is they put a stake in the ground, they drew a circle and uh, marked that sacred ground out and they had to wait a whole year before they could do the next move. And that year meant that they had to put all the cattle onto that ground, the cattle had to, to feed from that ground, to defecate on it, and so forth. And then they had to grow the grain on that land, and they had to reap the grain to make sacred bread, to make the sacrifice ready for the next stage. So the whole ecological cycle had to be gone through on the site. It wasn't just a matter of taking a piece of ground and taking the old bulldozer and flattening it out and so forth. It was actually going through the whole cycle of creation. So they put the stake in the middle of the ground, and they um, used, from that, they, they First thing they did was to strike two arcs from here and from here to, to get north, south, east, and west. And they had then a special post with, with certain dimensions which they put up in the middle of the circle. And there is the layout. This is the circle which they were after the layout. They gave them a perfect north, south, east, and west because when the post was put here at sunrise, which is in the east, a shadow would be cast into the west from the post, and they would mark that. Then when the sun went down, and it had to be on a special day, um, when the sun went down, it would cast a shadow to be a, a perfect east. And setting in the west, casting a shadow to the east. So that's how they got the north, south, east, and west. So here we have this constant recurrence. You remember this diagram where this was the sun, and that was the moon, and this was consciousness. Well, they're all related. Um, and the meaning of this, this ground, the, the temple is literally the place in which man can mediate with the gods. And that, that is a totally appropriate place from, from the lunar changing world where we're battling with our domestic life to the fully universal world we need a place to mediate. And the word contemplation is where temple comes from, contemplation. And tempus and templum in Latin both mean space and time. So we, we go into a temple space to try to recover timelessness, both of ourselves and God. That's what I suggest that the stone circles are about, and I, I'm, I'm going through all of this using different cultures to try and put that thesis forward. Next one here. I don't think there's any point in treating in isolation. But having got to this point, 
and Paul will be very patient. I'm now going to suggest it would be quite good to have a break and a breather and come back in ten minutes. Is that okay? But we, we are going to start with the stone circles next. And I do think it's quite hard and we'd like to get some air to this room and get everybody just to stretch their limbs. So we'll have a ten minute break and then I'll go into the second half. Thank you. Castle Rig. Um, to the untrained eye, which is, which is the eye that human beings and archaeologists have taken to these stone circles for many hundreds of years, going right back to, to goodness knows when. These have been considered to be rough and rude circles. That's the word that's actually used by them. They were put together by rough and rude people with no sophistication, and they just merely said they, they weren't even able to shape them. Well, it's intriguing. The nearest things these have in common were with one of the most sophisticated um, traditions to do with stone, which, which is the Zen Buddhist tradition, where stones are understood for their intrinsic value without touching them. In other words, the Zen uh, monastery gardens always had these remarkable uh, stones standing in these sand things. These would be best compared to that. But not only that, what Alexander Tom discovered was that the sighting of such as Castle Rig, which is in the Lake District, was so sophisticated, he said it would probably take something like 10 years for the most modern, sophisticated team of surveyors to find a site to do what this, these stones do. But that's Alexander Tom speaking as the Professor Emer Emeritus at Cambridge University. This site, this particular plateau on a field in the Lake District, is related to these niches in the horizon in a way which is quite, um, as he said, something which might take 10 years for a modern team of people to discover the possibility of placing stakes or stones in the ground to use these markers from the circle to precisely chart the sunrises and sunsets. Now, this next slide up here, if we could have it, yes. Next one is a chart. Rather, I don't try to read it all um, by any means. This is the horizon in Arizona around a very, very important one of the most sacred sites for Hopi Indians um, at Arrivi. Kathleen will remember the visit there. And the whole of their year is governed by these points in the horizon which tell them which sacred dances to do, when to plant the corn and so on, all to do the rising and setting of the sun. Now this diagram here shows the coincidence of the most important positions above of the Hopi Indians and the most important positions below of the stone circles in Britain. And this is, this is Alexander's Tom, very interesting statistical way of saying, here we can see such a remarkable set of coincidences that the stone circles appear to have been built on the same basis as the North American Indians, the Hopi Indians, who still have their sacred sites and have the, the secrets and mysteries of how to make corn grow in the desert that no other people can do without rain. Um, they are based on the same intervals of the year as the stone circle orientations are. For that, I had the good fortune on one occasion of being able to hold a very brief interview with some elders of one of the North American Indian tribes, the Canadian North American Indians, who had on principle not learnt any other language but their own. They were Crow Indians and they couldn't speak any other language. So I had to have an interview with them with an interpreter. And anybody who's ever spoken to an elder of a North American Indian tribe knows they speak in unbelievably simple sentences. So simple that one is stunned into thinking one didn't actually have anything said to one. So I had the opportunity of saying to these elders, what were the stone circles of the North American Indians built for? And the only reply I got was two words. 
they are spirit paths. Spirit paths. Now that can mean all or nothing. If you're cynical, oh, it's just a man just saying something silly. If you're not cynical, then these are considered to be paths for the entry and exit of the spirit, whatever that might mean. Now, as we lived in and use the language that's completely orientated towards the lunar world, explaining the physical world, we do not have, we can't translate into the other terms. Everybody knows we can't even translate the Buddhist the sutras uh, because we don't have the psychological terms in English. English language was, was created for empirical science, and it's brilliant at describing empirical science. It's extremely unbrilliant at having terms about inner psychological and spiritual experiences. As anybody knows who studied sacred language, so here we have this interesting coincidence here, and here we have Castle Rig. I'm going to just show you about the geometry of Castle Rig now. Next one from here. There's Castle Rig from the air, and what's intriguing is, in common with the majority of circles, they are not circles. This is the first thing that alerted Tom into saying, oh, now as a circle is the most simple thing for a man to do, put a stake in the ground and take a piece of rope and walk around and scratch the ground and somebody else to go behind and mark it. What's this doing here? This is, this is not. This is flattened up. Here's a circle. But this is all flattened. And then there's this little thing in here. What's all that about? So he said, what he did, he did a, a job, a brilliant job, um, knowing the, the mystique of the modern computer, he decided not to try and prove it by his own surveying skills, which were excellent, but he, he fed into the computer the centers of gravity of the stones, then said to the computer, please feed me back the curve which most nearly fits the center of gravity of the stones. Very, very brilliant objective use of, of a computer. And what he did, this is just this is his survey, and there you can see the flattening, and here you can see the round part. Next one here. And we'll come to the actual curve he found, but the way, what I decided to do, what Tom said, why this was so fantastic, this particular circle, was because there were seven orientations, the readings you can take from within the circle, using the stones, seven of them, which give you exact positions of, of, of moon and sunrises, seven of them. And he said that's why it's such an incredible accomplishment to place the stones in such a way that you can use the, the marks on the horizon to give you an absolute precise reading. Now, what I wanted to do was to see whether or not we could use this primary um, strategy that, they, that we, we have got re recording of the Vedic tradition. Of course, it's part of the Christian tradition because all the cathedrals fit inside the shape. And so I decided to see if we could construct the sophisticated geometry from this very, very simple beginning. <coughs> and the first orientation here, which is to do a circle and then to find out where the second circle, this is based on the setting of the... the, the um, the Candlemas rising sun, which is in this direction, the rising sun of Candlemas is over here. Then this direction, which is taking the point here, going through the centre here, like this, this gives us the equinoctical rising sun, the difference between the lowest sun and the highest sun are on these geometries. And this angle here was not only where it was, but it picked up the horizon, and, and a point in the horizon as that one did, which we'll see in a minute. Now, this part of the circle here is where the flattening was. The part of the circle we saw on the ground circular, then the flattening comes in here, on this axis here. And these also are, are um, solstitial moon-rising axes. Next one here. There's the geometry that Alexander Tom Powell. This is the curve the computer gave him, and this, is the, this geometry inside is the analysis of that. Now, these are illiterate people 
putting something together which is really unbelievably sophisticated. It's even more sophisticated in as much that we know, everybody in the room knows, that we can't measure the perimeter of a circle by its radius. If this is a rational number, this will never be a rational number around here. And what Tom discovered, which was a knockout, was that by flattening it, he could get this curve to be as that within a matter of hundredths of, of, of a foot, a whole number, that curve is a whole number of the distance of the radius of the circle. So that, in other words, it was a way of rationalizing something which is transcendental. But in terms of the geometry itself, you do a circle, the natural division of the circle is here, where these green lines cross the radiuses. We, we will see this exploded style. In other words, that's a radius, that's a radius, that's a radius, that's a radius. Where those green lines cross these center lines there, there is the center. Having drawn a circle from here around to there, that is the center of an arc which moves to there. That's the center of an arc which moves to there. And then come right back to here to flatten it up. Now that's what the computer gave to Alexander Tom. But that's an extremely sophisticated piece of geometry, quite apart from the fact that we've got all these, ori these orientations. So we're taking the cosmic orientations from the horizon, the changing world, and we're fitting them into an extremely sophisticated area, which is to do with the rationalization of the perimeter of the circle from a circle which can't be rationalized. In terms of its radius, that is. Next one here. There's the geometry again, rather more simply. What I've done is I've colored in the, the red. It represents how much of the circle, which is two-thirds exactly. Then a little piece here, a little circle from there, a little circle from there, and then come right back to here to take the center of that part there. That is the geometry. This one. Now, I'm showing two slides now so we can pick up from the stones. Here's the flattening. Now, I've turned it round, so that flattening which is there has now been turned back to the axis which I first showed. Here's the flattening going through, and here is the setting sun at midsummer. Here's the most normally setting moon. So there's two of the orientations. Next one here, which is the bottom half of the circle. Over here, between there, and, and you can see, standing in the center of the circle, right past the, this little upright here, and through the geometry, equinox sun, candle mass rising sun, midwinter sun, rising sun, most southerly rising moon, and the north, the north and the most southerly setting moon. So here are the, the rest of the seven orientations that are taken from these stones. Either from across or from the center. Now that's what Alexander Thompson said is so remarkable. And together with that is this strange flattening. Now, this doesn't speak of a rude people who are illiterate and therefore can't think and can't calculate and can't work. What it means is that geometry, the language of geometry, is far more developed and far more important to this stage of consciousness than words or symbols which were once removed from the actuality of putting the stones up. Next one over there. There is one of the alignments, precisely, across these, I can't point you on this across the circle to the point at which the moon or sun is going to either come, go down or come up. This is, this is, this is one of Tom's examples, incredible alignment to quite a few miles away where the hills give it an appropriate point. Now that's a most incredible piece of engineering. Next one here. And there are seven of those such alignments. Now this is a different circle, but just to pick up the rather dramatic and beautiful Swin side now, 
But to pick up this dramatic thing, to, to, just so you can see what I'm saying here, of course, this hasn't got a niche here, but this is the, the point at which this full moon here is, is going to set. And uh, it's inside, no doubt, this choice of this stone in relationship to that would be a marker. But it's this horizon or setting of the sun in seven different positions on the horizon like that, lined up with the stones. And that really is an incredible achievement for people who were. We have no other records, but this was really left behind. They have no written records, we have no idea what kind of people they were. But they were putting together temples on this planet before many other temples anywhere else in the world were put together. I use the word temple because of the business of, of, of the measurement of time as well as contemplation. Next one over there. Um, this is for those in the room who may not be any of us, I think, who know this rather remarkable figure. Michael Bullen Ralph, who um, set up a school of philosophy in Scotland and quite near to a stone circle, which you see a stone here, which is called Alan Water. Alan Water is one of the egg shaped, very sophisticated egg shaped. We've just seen this flattened circle, now we're going to see an egg shaped circle, and that's called Alan Water. And this man himself, a philosopher, was delighted to find that not far from where he established a school in Scotland was this a very important specimen of geometry on the ground. Next one here. Now, it's not at all dramatic, but because not that many stones are left standing, what Tom is very specific about is these ones are in the original positions, these have been interfered with and probably can't be relied upon. Nevertheless, he put these through the computer again and came up with a very remarkable egg-shaped geometry. This is nowhere near a circle, as anybody can see. So this is the geometry that you can back against a big hole. Is this stones, just to show you how undramatic they are. You see this one, which is leaning here, that's what that second, that's this one. So these three are at the top of that drawing, and that's the view, you can see again this wonderful pattern, the view across to the horizon in Whitecliffe, the area of Scotland. Next one here, I hope this will be the geometry of it. There it is, there's the egg shape. And that, uh, this triangle in here, is what's known as a whole number right angle triangle. In other words, the way in which these sophisticated eggs were done, again, was to try and get a rational perimeter to the radius of the circle. This part is a circle, and from here on is an egg. And this is like a 3, 4, it's not a 3, 4, 5 triangle, but it's the same principle. A whole number, whole number, whole number, making up a right angle here. You all know that a 3, 4, 5 triangle <coughs> is a whole number, whole number, whole number, and gives the right angle. This is a more sophisticated one. Now, the geometry is, this point here gives us the bottom of the... Then we move this triangle is, is flipped and left. We go over here to get this, this curve of the egg. This is the radius. We get this curve of the egg from that point. We get this curve of the egg from this point. And where the top of the triangle is, we get the concluding curve. And this is the curve which the computer says is the nearest one, which will fit those stones. Now, what's remarkable is these are whole numbers here, but in fact, this angle in here becomes something even more remarkable. And that is, it's a, it's a regular division of a circle, which I'll come back to. This is how you can see it's a regular division of a circle. In fact, it is two ninths of a circle. In other words, you can see now, what I've done is I've completed the circle. This is, I took Thomas' surveys and thought to myself, well, let's see what, what lies behind this geometry. Let's complete this circle, not just use it at the top of the egg, let's complete it. I then divided it into nine and found that these divisions of the nine, this is two ninths, and therefore that is two ninths. 
Can you see that? You count these points. One, two, three, four, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, which are made up of three equilateral triangles crossing over. You see that the top of the egg is two ninths. That's one ninth. That's two ninths. And therefore the bottom will be two ninths. One ninth, two ninths. Now this division of a circle into nine is profoundly important to those who know anything about geometry. You can't actually do it with a compass and a straight edge. You can't actually draw a circle into nine divisions precisely. It's one of those mysteries. Seven and nine in, in, in the scale of, of polygons cannot be achieved with a straight edge and compass. Therefore, it's given very great importance. Apart from the fact that you want to point out many heavenly cycles on a nine-fold division of the heavens, which is the cycle of the coincidence of Saturn and Jupiter over 60 years, for instance. They coincide, Saturn and Jupiter conjunct on these nine points in a total 60-year cycle. You have to take my word for it, chaps. <laughs> now, this is Barrowstone Rig, and this is another of the sophisticated eggs, quite a strange one. The, the, the 3, 4, 5 triangle is now set this way, and there's a rectangle taken from it to achieve the top curve and the straight part of the egg and the bottom part of the egg. This is a very large circuit, 365 feet across. 365 feet is quite significant. Um, and there is, you see the stones are quite small in comparison. Again, the computer came up with this curve, we have this egg shape, and again, now we have an interesting thing. This division here is also a regular division of the polygon as this is. Which wasn't part of Alexander Tom's brief, it just happens to be a property of the original triangle that he said was laid out on it. Again, to achieve, to achieve a rational perimeter. That's how it works. The geometry of the top piece is here, the geometry of the bottom piece here, and the geometry of these curves. So, circle is drawn, half a circle, center to get here, center, this, this much of the circle is drawn, then the, the, the uh, 345 triangle, rectangle from that, rectangle from that, and then the top. Now this is, again, we must be reminded that it's much easier to do a circle than it is to do anything else. So these are highly sophisticated um, constructions. For what? Well, we can only assume from the measurements of Castle Ring, which we just saw, that they were cosmological, but they were also very importantly cosmological. In the British Museum are three gold plates. Three and three only. And this is one of them. Because these gold plates were very much later, this is the age, we're moving into the metal age, great intriguing, intriguing, enigmatic mystery about these gold plates. That was found in a burial on the breast of, of the king or warrior, whoever it was, and this is a gold breastplate. Exactly parallel to the era's breastplate in the Bible. Not jewels in it, nevertheless. And this Nobody had really been able to make too much out of this, except the fact that it was this rather curious diamond shape, and it's made of gold, and I speculated in my book that it was actually a cover for a piece of wood, which would be inside it, probably a piece of hard wood. And why the piece of hard wood was so important was that it actually measured the angle of two nights, precisely the angle that the, the stone circle we saw was, was drawn at. And therefore it was extremely precious, because you can't do nine with a straight edge and compass, and therefore, once you have achieved it and made a very, very fine and beautiful template, the word template, again, you find the word temple, you keep it in a gold disc. 
Now, the fact that it's two knights is confirmed by the fact that the inner division is nine, nine divisions here, and there are nine triangles on each edge. So the information is given to you geometrically, not in, not in abstract language, but geometrically, about the practices about nines. And that is the angle we see here. So to do a drawing a model, a maquette of the same circle, they would use such a template to set it up. Now, there are three of these, and, and these, these are theories of my own, and, and therefore I take full responsibility for them. There are only three of these things, and each of those three represent divisions of a part of a polygon. This one is, is two knights. The next one, which I think we made it here, I hope. No, sorry, this is just to confirm what I was saying there. Let's move on to the next one there. That's how this is made to nine, and that's how it would be used to make two knights. Make a circle, place the top corner on it, and it will give you exactly two knights. The template, as a template. Next one here. And this one, this gold plate, which is in gold, which is actually in Dorchester Museum, is two sevenths. Again, seven being another of the polygons which you cannot achieve with a compass and a straight edge. So two knights and two sevenths are very sacred to anybody who's done any sophisticated geometry because once you've achieved them, you want to hold them. And I suggest this, this was a gold plate cover, again found buried on the breast of whoever the chief or priest was, and makes up two sevenths. Of course, you can see it's been distorted under the burial, but here we have the next one here. This, this is the third one is two sixths of a circle. The third one is actually a double equilateral triangle. So the three plates that we've got. All of them divide a circle into either two sixths, uh, two sevenths, or two ninths. Next one. So my theory that they are used to divide circles is 100% maybe. Uh, this uh, man has the opposite problem that I have, um, is Pope Urban V. But what do we see? We see a vestige of that tradition. Now you could just say that's a decorative brooch he's wearing. And you could think these are just arbitrary angles which... Gothic um, artists like to put their images in, but that would be a fundamental uh, trivialization of a, of a profound tradition. These traditions were carried on through the language of geometry. And who's to say what effect the eye has in flowing down those two lines and the amount they open? And I wouldn't want to say that it's just trivial. Yeah, right, we move on to this stone circle which we touched on before which Alexander Tom says is the most sophisticated one in British Isles. Well, to go there when the snow is just the most lovely time to go and see a stone circle. It's very awe-inspiring. What happened to myself and the photographer when we went up there, we went up there all full of excitement, we got up there and suddenly saw a snowstorm coming towards us. And as a snowstorm came towards us, we were completely obliterated. There was no sense of ground, there was no sense of sky, and the snow was so driving so hard that both of us were cut in half by the snow. We both were covered on one side, we just broke into hysterics. Yeah, because we were slowly being obliterated by whiteness. It seemed highly appropriate, but we didn't know we were going to come back again. Anyway, it's lovely to go to see stone servers in the snow. And these are the photographs that Rod brought to so the next one here. And there it is again, you see it on the promontory. And this is the one which he considered to be most sophisticated, and I'll show you the reason why. There is Alexander Tom's analysis of that. You can see not only is it a flattened circle, but remarkably sophisticated flattened circle. It's flattened on four sides with only one edge of it anywhere near a circle. 
So here we have this, which is near a circle, then a tiny arc coming from here, then a flattening, which is flattened from over here, then another tiny arc from here, then a flattening, which comes from over there, another tiny, and then we find these five little flattenings are precisely next one here on the five-pointed star. There are the five positions, which the, here again, this is the line which the computer gave him from the centers of gravity of the stones. I've redrawn it, but it does make the point extremely well. If you feed the center of gravity, it says into the computer, say, what, what curve will suit these? This is the nearest one, and then he just found the rationale behind it. Next one here. There's the five-pointed star, which gives us the position for these little flattenings, the ones which happen opposite here like that. So what Alexander Tom did say was, which is very, very interesting, is orientation, which actually goes across here, past that big stone, which picks up the rising of the planet Venus at a particular part of the year. And you ought to know, if you don't already, that Venus, the whole point about Venus is it does a retrograde balance around us, which is exactly five loops every eight years. And it's a beautiful, beautiful slide. I haven't got a slide of it, but I've shown it before. But again, no doubt. Next one here. Now, the other point is going right out to the periphery of this circle to get the flattening, and this is the flattening which is represented here, and the flattening which is represented there. You have to come right over, over here. And that's how they work. Now, Alexander Tom discovered these flattenings and how they work. One of them is a circle, but the other four are flattened. Next one over there. This is why he said it's so sophisticated. Now here is the part which is circular, and what I've done on here, I've, I've put it into negative. These are to do with the magnetic yards that he discovered, and I've actually shown that the amount of flattening, that angle layer, which is, wasn't something Alexander Tom was looking for, if you continue to draw it inside the circle, you find it makes a perfect seven-pointed star. In other words, it is the angle, the precise angle, that distance of the flattening is precisely one-seventh of the whole. So again, the two feminine principles in the planetary allocation, the Moon and Venus, are both then in the circle, in the geometry. In other words, the seven is related to the Moon and the five to Venus. Which is maybe coincidence, but it's fascinating to see how that rationale is placed into the stones. Next one here. And there, what, another thing I discovered on taking this angle of the seven pointed star, there were exactly seven stones inside each of those angles. There's one hell of a game going on here. These are not, not very rude, illiterate people. They are illiterate, but by God, they know something about how to handle cosmology and geometry. No compasses, no architectural schools, no nothing. Next one here. There is a very nice photograph that Rod took. There's all sorts of very intriguing stories that I can tell you what happened to us when we were up there. So you can see at this point we couldn't, we couldn't bring ourselves to step inside and, and, and desecrate the snow. But unfortunately, um, a group of four scientists, I say with great respect, came pounding up to us with Geiger counts and well under Did you hear the big bang last night? Oh, no, no, we didn't hear the big bang. We were asleep in the youth hostel below. Oh, well, there's a big bang, and, and, and we're quite sure a very important meteorite has landed in this area. We're searching for it with our, with our Geiger counter. And so well, two of them are sort of holding it. One of them with a Geiger counter sort of charging into the circle, making up a lovely snow. 
put his dragon counter down on the stone, which you can see there like that. Um, <laughs> and he looked at it and he said, You must be something wrong with this. Clouds. Throw it off. You know, there's such a thing as objective science. If the needle's going like hell on that stone, you can just tell it. No, they're looking for something else there. <laughs> Story of science, forgive me. Next one here. I'm very amused by that. Now, the other question that people ask is, why would the people have any sense of geometry and symmetry, and where would they get that knowledge from? Why would they even think about it? Well, the answer is the natural world is speaking to us all the time through a flower. This is the last few hours of a buttercup. It's a very nostalgic picture for me because I realised it was the last evening that buttercup would be alive, and that is because the yellow is giving wonderful uh, yellow gives way to this amazing violet before the leaves collapse. But the five-fold symmetry and all the other symmetries in the flowers, another one I hope here, would be natural promise to these flowers have been just as much evident and, and, and in front of the so-called illiterate um, 5,000 year ago folks as they are to us. Yeah, these would no doubt be provocative to, well, if there is a creator and he created these amazing things of beauty, um, then the symmetry must have something to do with it. Uh, that's to say the very least. And of course, it's through these symmetries that these flowers are linked to the planets and their behavior in the heavens through the retrograde symmetries. Next one here. And those who've ever really looked at an nasturtium leaf, which of course you can eat in a salad if you're feeling thoroughly enthusiastic, is that it's the most curious flattened circle in as much that the geometry of the veins above the thing are 45, 45, 45, 45. They're divisions of the right angle and half a right angle. Below the perimeter, there are 30 degree divisions. Of course, nowhere near accurate on each leaf. But it's a very, very curious thing that an assertion, a leaf, the veins are in that give you, give you 45 degree geometry above and 30 degree geometry below. Have a look at your next assertion salad. Now, this is from John Michel, and I would like to recommend everybody in this room who hasn't picked up his book, The Dimensions of Paradise, The Dimensions of Paradise, should do so because John has done this most exceptional research into the meanings of such things as why a squared circle are important. In other words, these stone circles are rationalizing the perimeter of the circle, therefore they're bringing it within the rational domain, and therefore the symbol, symbolism of the square, which means the changing material world, and the circle, which is the eternal world, how they meet. And John made a remarkable discovery that is, if you divide a circle into 12 equal parts, like that, which are the natural divisions of the way which you divide the hours of a clock or the months of a year, and you take lines through these points and through these two points and through these two points here, you land up with a square and a circle of equal areas. Great, intriguing mystery, based on this exact 12 fold division. And it's quite obvious that the, and why, Thomas, uh, Alexander Tom talks about why the, the, these several literal people are so concerned to get um, the rationalization of the thing is to do with the fact they're trying, and one has to think about it, okay, they're trying to bring eternity into the material domain. What we now call bringing heaven onto earth. I say now, there's some of them believe heaven. But in other words, the, the business of trying to bring that which is eternal into if you like, domestic changing life is the constant mystery of, one might say, the religious life, or the 
life dedicated to holiness or sacredness, and so well, that's what it's all about. And therefore, these, this is why the word temple is, you, know, you, you are different from everybody else, you know you're different from everybody else, at the same time, you're reminded that you're the same. You have the same feelings, you have possibly the same destiny. It's those, only by getting to the center to contemplate that, the center of time, the center of space, which is what the temple is for, can one uh, rediscover one's timeless being. Next one here. Now, this is a little bit long, so I'll gallop through it, but it's, it's a very, very beautiful statement from René Guénon. And it is not only to do with the circle and square, but actually the three-dimensional versions of those. The sphere, then, can be said to be the most universal form of all, containing, in a certain sense, all other forms, which will emerge from it by means of differentiations taking place in certain particular directions. In other words, the sphere contains all three-dimensional forms in the same way that the circle contains all polygons. And that's why the spherical form is, in all traditions, that of the egg of the world. That is the founding of the world. Another profound reason for these so-called illiterate certain people on our island here, uh, dealing with that symbols. In other words, the form of it, which represents the global integrality in their first and embryonic state of all possibilities which will be developed in the course of cycle of manifestation. In other words, the beginning of the cycle of a manifestation in the material world starts with, with a single global integrity. Exactly the same way that everybody in this room started as a perfect sphere in their mother's womb. The point at which everybody in this room decided you were going to incarnate was when your mother's egg, which is a perfect sphere, was penetrated by your father's sperm and that conception took place, that metamaritism. And that's what he's talking about here on a very large scale, about 2,000 year intervals of civilization. On the other hand, the cube is opposed to sphere being the most arrested form of all. Interesting thing is, part of the, part of the argument we have here, why this institute is formed, is because modern architecture reduced uh, all architecture to cubic forms. And that is an imprisonment of the spirit into one world only, and that is the world of change, or the world which has no possible out to the spiritual domain. So the cube is supposed to be the most arrested form of all and can be so expressed, this means that it corresponds to the maximum of specification. The cube is also the form which is related to the earth as one of the elements, and as much as the earth is the terminating and final element, from, from light to air to water to earth, earth is the most dense final of the, of the emanations from the spiritual world, of manifestation of the corporeal state. Consequently, it corresponds to the end of the cycle of manifestation, or what has been called the stopping point of the cyclic movement. In other words, when you get to pure cubicality, you've hit the deck, you've hit the bottom. There's only one way to go when you hit the bottom, and that's up again. That's what we're doing, isn't it, Dick? Next one over there. All this propaganda. Fascinating, the only mandala, and Kathleen, thankfully sitting amongst us, has written very beautifully about this. The only mandala, our prophet, William Blake, Drew was this one, and of course this cosmic egg is the center of the four worlds, all of which were destroyed in the Revolution, which are the four worlds of differentiation. This destroyed being getting back into unity, presumably. And here's what's called Milton's track, and Milton's track has to go through the flames of Saturn to reach this point here, which is the Adam, the fourfold perfection of one's being. And it's a very, very fascinating um, fact that William Blake had this vision to do this. Here's the egg again. Next one here. Just wanted to, um, and this is the part of the commentary on this drawing by William Blake. The four universes around the universe of loss remain chaotic. 
four intersecting globes and the egg forms a world of loss. Loss, of course, is, I hope Catherine would put this right, is an anagram for, for, for soul, which means we're talking about the, the solar world, the eternal world. In the midst, stretching from zenith to 98, in the midst of chaos. It's interesting how, how fashionable chaos mathematics is at the moment, is it not? Let's get back to soul mathematics. One of these ruined universes, the north, named Inferno, one of the south, which was, uh, this was the glorious world that was on, one of the east, one of the west, south. These all had to be destroyed. They have to be destroyed because they are separate conscious, consciousnesses to rediscover the integrality of the whole. Next one over there. Right, a point which I want to link up, particularly for my students, was that the remnants of the profundity of the stone circles can be seen in a rectilinear building, a sacred building. These are now um, the reminiscent Christian church plans and how their proportions were formed. These are remnants of the global integrity, or the global integrality, as we're calls it, the stone circle, and the restriction into cubic form of the sacred space. As a cycle continues, it's going to move towards the cube. Of course, once we hit the Bauhaus, we hit the cube. And we're trying to get out of it. Um, so this is an intriguing thing. The, the, the principle of, of, of the positions of where the stones were are now conceptual, but they do determine from the solar central message and the crossing point of the place of um, the heart of the building. This is the profile of the building, and these divisions, which are divisions of the whole, are the way the proportions are set up. This was done by... Uh, a very remarkable man called Marcel in the 1930s, and his work is not even in published form. It was a typical tragedy. He was an engineer, had no mystical leanings, no esoteric, nothing. He just said, this is what I found. Of course, people didn't want to hear it. Sadly, but maybe I will. Next one here. And for those, and my goodness, we have enough of them, who say the golden mean, that's our very gold cobblers, they didn't know about the golden mean, they just did it with modules. Well, I don't know who they were and why it was any modules, but for those who are sceptical, these are Roman. These, this pair of dividers, not the dividers are Roman. They're in Naples Museum, and nothing could prove more clearly that they handle the golden mean, because every time you open these, whatever you open, that is a golden mean smaller than that which is a golden mean larger, because that length is divided itself into a golden mean. So when anybody telling me that the classical architects didn't know about the golden mean, because they certainly would not have a pair of calipers like that if they didn't. And this is what Marcel found, and again, this has not been published anywhere else since the 1930s, because it's still a fashionable thing to say, oh, well, nobody knew about the golden mean until somebody invented it in about 1850. But of course, it's just pathetic. Sorry, to me, it's pathetic, <laughs> because every flower, which is fivefold, that opens, and the whole leaf system in, in biology immediately relates to the golden mean through the Fibonacci series. So it's part of our own unfolding. If you unfold your hand, you're unfolding. And Portion system which is directly related to the problem me. Thanks for And for those, again, just to hit this point about modules, there is the Pentagon drawn on the classical capital, which actually is in, in Germany. It's the capital of the, this particular church in Germany, Rhein. And we see it perpetuating it now. The, Unfolding of the green world is on golden means, and here it is beautifully carved in stone where the golden mean intervals show the different parts of this unfolding Corinthian capital. Very, very beautiful diagram of how the golden mean is used in the diagram of a five of a pentagon, as Moel the stone circle. What's next one here? Now, just to finish with, 
that one of the most uh, surprising things, and I was very pleased to correspond about it on top about it, was that in a, in a magazine for children was published three stone balls, as they were called, from Scotland. And I immediately saw these three, and they had bumps on them. And the bumps were in the platonic symmetries, because I'd been working with platonic figures, so I immediately hit me. But good gracious, let's go to Edinburgh Museum and see these things. Well, these were produced at the period that we're talking about, 3000 BC, 2500 BC, and they're carved, and this is a perfect circle for us, a perfect sphere, carved out of the, the, the hardest stone that these people could, could, could get hold of, which is granite. And to have got a sphere to this level of perfection is quite amazing, and some of these stones are found in Scarabray, when they, um, when they excavate the Scarabray. So, not only were they living a very, very austere, a very simple life in terms of their diet and their clothes and, and the way they lived on the planet, they lived what we call very lightly on the planet, they lived extremely ecologically responsible on the planet, these people, but they were able or driven to go for perfection and, and record perfection in stone, either in their temple or in these models, which are just the size of a tennis ball in the hand. Next one here. These are the most startling things. That is the most beautiful one which is found. And the first one, and this is the point if one's not looking for it, wonderful spirals. I found this is found in Scotland. And the important point about this is that these commentaries on this here are in what's put there are four equal divisions, which is an extremely difficult thing to do with the spheres, to mark out four points which are equal distant from each other. It is what is known as the tetrahedron. In Platonic. It is the first primary and most important of the solids in, in, in geometry because it's the first one, primary one, and it's the one that Plato said is to be taken to represent the spirit. Now, if we just found this one, which is that guy who carved that, not only the amazing thing that carved the stone with these bumps, but then there's other things like that may just be one off. This guy was a genius, he came from Sirius or somewhere, just to take him seriously. Next one here. Um, but, fact of the matter was, Many hundreds of these things exist, and they were found in these places. The school was concentrated in this part of Scotland. Now, this was 3,000 years. This is when, when, when if you like, people were woven and grunting in Greece. Sorry, I must have been too worried about the Greeks. Uh, this is well before, this is 2,000 years before Plato was meant to have discovered and published these things. 2,000 years before Plato, where these people, these so called primitive literate people, were carving these very specific mathematical symmetries. And the patterns on the next one here. There is the carving, which I was allowed in the museum to put tapes on to show. This symmetry is a, you can either do it like this in a crystalline form, or as we did, the students put it together like this. Now, if you put uh, this model into a rubber balloon so it, so it, it presses it, you will come up with something which looks rather like that. That's an extremely sophisticated piece of geometry to carve when you have no metal implements. You, uh, living a life and the only, stone, you, any way you could carve was with another stone and it must have taken months if not years to make these things. Next one here. No accident. Here are all the different versions of tetrahedra. Just a little group in, in all of the museum in Edinburgh. Not on show. They're not important enough to put on show. They're in a drawer. Marked other objects. Uh, I opened this drawer my eyes came right up and stalked. I just couldn't be there. Other objects. And the only writings about the art probably for throwing it at other people they didn't like, you know. <laughs> so And this, which is almost worthy of a brancusi, I put the kind of tapes on this is a cube of a most sophisticated kind, most beautifully polished brand. 
Now these were these people who had very simple primitive clothes, they had, had bone needles and simple, living a very simple life, but they, they, they took problems how many months to make this beautiful thing. I mean, maybe they didn't do the calculation how long it would take. They could use a grey, you know, you have another shape of it. Incredible. Next one here, to show that this wasn't arbitrary, there was a great deal of knowledge behind it. We actually find the icosahedron and tetrahedron uh, and, and dodecahedron here. Was, there are 12 bumps on this one to show how it's going to I've marked up the face if it was an icosahedron, and of course, if, if you take it as a dodecahedron, you join these points. I was very pleased that the museum don't value these things too much, let me stick all these tapes over. Uh, next one here, just to bring out the symmetries. And there are the whole set of photonic figures. We tend to see them like this, we tend to be taught them like this. But there they are, the whole lot. Here's the dodecahedron, the icosahedron, the cube, another version of the cube here, the grand thickness cube, or an octahedron. And this is the form which we tend to have interpreted Plato, but Plato doesn't actually say they have to be made in this form. So all the knowledge of the Platonic symmetries were there in this period, 2,000 years before Plato published anything. And it does start raising questions about what is human consciousness. And if we take the view that all traditions teach, all sacred traditions teach, that spirit comes first and matter comes second, then we are dealing with a period, like a sort of golden age, where people did not need all the trimmings. They didn't want fire to burn downwards and water to travel upwards. They actually took the world as it was and just used the tools which would ignite their consciousness to find out who they were. That's what I'm going to posit. That's what the fundamental of these things are. They help you know who you are. And that's a pretty strange thing to say in a way, but what else? We ourselves, from our first beginning as a sphere, we go through, and I've shown this, we go through all these symmetries in the splitting of the cells as we build this thing called our body. So to find our way back to unity is a process of, of, of remembering in the true platonic sense of putting the members back to an integral whole that is to discover the spherically of ourselves. That's what I suggest. The circle of ourselves or the spherical, the wholeness of ourselves. That's one of the great goals of all spiritual traditions. Next one here. And curiously enough, in the British Museum is an Egyptian dice, many, about a thousand years later, an Egyptian icosahedral dice with Greek letters on So you actually consult the gods through what letters come up and so forth. So this is this this what we think of Egypt being the great sophisticated civilization which, which came to us pretty late. We were still grunting away when when William the Conqueror arrived, when we were covering ourselves with paint or a very silly people. Whereas our ancestors, three thousand years before us, were doing things which were even more sophisticated than writing books about geometry, they were doing it. Next one here. Sorry, next one there. Right, I would just like to show a nice little image of a standing stone which I came across in Canyon de Chez in Arizona. It's a natural standing stone, but I also wanted just to remind people of this man, very important man, died in the 1940s, talking about sacred science as an opposition to the science of manipulation, which has hijacked sacred science. Sacred science starts from this mysterious but demonstrative, demonstrative reality which shows an energetic or spiritual world preceding the material and the positive world. Until one gets this right, one can see the huge danger of Darwinism taking the physical world first and saying, okay, when we're women, we've got enough muscles, then we, we're allowed to have intelligence. This is the opposite way around. This body, as, as Rumi says in his poem, 
It's not that the body um, gave birth to consciousness, but we as consciousness gave birth to the body. Just a fundamental difference in orientation. Next one here. I want to finish on these two quotations that I started with because if there is any doubt in the student's mind, whether we're old students or young students, the process of philosophy has always been advocated, the love of wisdom has been advocated as the way to find the truth of oneself and the way to actually achieve in this world. And it's just so important that we really understand why. Why one should talk about Plato who lived 70,000 years ago. Why one should talk about Spencer and so forth. Because part of it is ourselves. History doesn't exist. History is now. And therefore, if we find a stone ball in, in Edinburgh holding our hands, we're holding now in our hands, as well as something which was made 5,000 years ago. I mean, that's the mystery. So balance soon retains the objective, carrying authority with it. Thank you very much, folks. That's it.